Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I am Bo Sanders. Welcome to Piecing It All Together. We are so glad that you are here. Our topic today is where do I start? If I've been thinking about decolonizing, maybe you've read a book on that recently and you've been wondering, what's my first step? Where can I start the process of decolonizing my mind and my existence? Today, that's what we're going to talk about. So is that a subtle hint that you made of uh, perhaps you're reading a book about decolonization, like decolonizing evangelicalism? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm assuming that the amount of feedback, I'm getting some really good feedback. So uh, people have ordered the book two weeks ago. They're getting the book. They're beginning to read the book. And so they're letting me know some questions that they have. I was actually going to send you an email later to get you thinking about some of the feedback I'm getting and topics that people want to talk about and whether we want to cover them as a, uh, as an upcoming episode of the podcast, or if we want to just hold them all and then do, you know, one of our live recordings where we invite other people into the conversation. But I am excited that people are reading the book and getting back to us on uh, topics that interest them. So that's an exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah, that's, that will be exciting. Hey, before we get into uh, this, where do I begin decolonizing conversation, Randy, I wanted to say congratulations on, uh, you got s- some good news on the farm front. Yeah, so our vision of Alahe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice um, has just taken a step forward. We closed on the property and so tomorrow we'll actually get the keys and walk in and we're excited about that uh um it's going to be a long move to go back and forth from off into there for us but um and so we'll be in there toward the end of may and uh we can start and and it's it's not unrelated to decolonization because what elahe indigenous center for earth justice is is really a place for um, reshaping worldviews, healing, um, dialogue, uh, being out in creation, and um, becoming a part of a new movement, a new worldview, a new cosmology, if you will. And so, um, and, and that is for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Uh, we're not going to um, regain uh, what we've lost in this world without uh, everybody working together. And so that's been our way of doing things. Um, we, uh, uh, we think that uh, together that we can, we can change the world. So that's what we're about. You know, I love this vision that you have, and it's actually really interesting that during this time of a global pause, as people are calling yeah. it, um, to think that when we hit the play button again, and we enter back into our cycles and our routines. What do we want to be different when we begin again from when we hit the when we hit pause and 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 put it all on hold? And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about uh, this conversation we're going to have today. But also about your and Edith's vision for the Indigenous Learning Center is it's perfect time to have this conversation Absolutely. and say how do we want to be in the world different than we were before we hit the pause button? That, that's such an important point because we cannot, this is an opportunity right now 
I mean, it's a, it's a horrible, horrendous, terrible thing. It's taking the lives of people we love. But this is an opportunity for us to sort of remake ourselves into a different way of relating to the world. And, and that is what I'm hoping and praying that people can stop and think, begin to uh, maybe some of the things that we talk about here today even, and begin to reformulate a different way of looking at the world and a different practice um, when they go back into the world. We can't go back in with the same attitude that we've had. We can't go back in with the same worldview that we've had because we know the destruction that that worldview brings. And that's a worldview that's propped up right now. It's, it, it's both a theological construct. Uh, we're talking about a liberative theology. We're talking about a liberative, liberative technologies. We need to be able to go back and say, hey, wait, no, let's begin to decolonize ourselves off of these uh, colonial structures that have been there for, you know, just, just to uh, prop up a few, what I call uh, feudal uh, corporatism, um, a few of the, the fat cats um, who are holding all the wealth in the world. And we have to go back into the world and de uh, as we begin to decolonize ourselves all of the, off of those things and find those things that are life-giving, those things that are regenerative, those things that are renewing, and now talking about both theologies and technologies and philosophies, our cosmology, uh, how we put the whole world together. It's got to be different. And this is our one chance. Uh, I think there's been a lot of uh, prophecies in the Native world for a while um, that, that say, you know, uh, we have only so much time. And it's, it's about, I think it's about 20 to 2025, something like that, before if we don't straighten this mess out, that the whole world is going to be spun into perpetual chaos and never to recover again. And so this is the time. Right now we have this pause as a blessing. I know it's hard to think of it that way, but as a blessing to rethink what we do. Well, two sort of side issues on that. I have uh, everyone at my congregation reading your Lenten devotional that was put together. And today's reading, March 31st, uh, was so profound about changing our relationship to both the plants and animals that we share the planet with. And then we read that devotional together uh, on our online gathering, our digital church this morning, and uh, had a very deep conversation. And it turns out that several of the people who were on that call are seriously considering scaling back the amount of meat they eat. And one was even considering being a vegetarian in light of this uh, global pandemic because of all of the harm, even to human harm, that has, comes out of our relationship to animals and specifically our meat on, uh, on the planet. So your devotional is so timely right now and people are really, as we engage it, it's calling us to really consider living a different way. That's great. I, I'm, a couple things I'm doing. One is I'm, um, uh, I'm writing a, another book based on that, kind of the same idea, but this is like a 100-day journey of indigenous inspiration or something. Like with, and, and so I hope to have in the next year that out, and that will sort of replace this Linton thing. The Linton uh, was the idea, and then this is the the what will happen as a result of the idea. So there'll be a, a book out like that. But here's the thing. Even if we come up with practices, it, we've got to go deeper than that. 
and that's what I hope we can talk about today. We've got to get to the root of this thing and say, what is it that causes people to not be in relationship with the natural world around them? And that's that's where I want to focus and, and talk about um, that it's that relationship. I guess you call it a cosmology, how you relate to the rest of creation that makes a difference between colonized people and decolonized people. It makes a difference between what we would call our indigenous or natural people and the way that we view the world and the way our, our relationship is with the world and the Western mindset, which is exploitive, competitive, and uh, you know a whole bunch of other nasty things I could say about it. But, but it is a worldview that has taken us to the brink of ending our place on the planet, our privilege to be co-sustainers of this planet. So we have to, first of all, the first thing uh, is to realize that what we're doing is not working. It, it, it is not working for us. It's not working for future generations. It's not working for the other living things. There's so many things that are extinct now that, and so many going extinct every day and every year. And, and our planet needs those things to do well. And uh, and so we've just got to rethink that that whole the whole thing. And the other thing I want to do is I want to come up with, and you'll probably be able to help me with this since you're so great at making lists. Um, I want to come well, up with <laughs> a list of a hundred things that people not uh, that, that they can do after they have really dealt with decolonizing their worldview. A hundred things, and, and you just mentioned one of them: um, becoming a vegetarian or uh, at least cutting down your meat consumption to maybe uh, once or twice a week. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm really enjoying, by the way, the, the way that we are recording this podcast now. We've sort of found our rhythm together and we aren't scripting it as much. And so um, we have this thing where I introduce the topic. And then I say, before we get to that, and then we talk about something else. But I can't I can't tell you how much I am enjoying that spontaneous, that improv part because I never know where we're going to go. And that is an electric idea This that you just put forward. And uh, we could actually crowdsource that with our listeners to come up with those hundred things. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fantastic. All right. We're going to do that. That's going to be a, an upcoming project. Okay. I'm, I'm all for that. that. That's great. We'll put the list of a hundred on our, uh, uh, our website and people can go and download yeah. it or whatever they want. But yeah. let's, uh, yeah, let's figure out a way to get people to start uh, uh, writing in and um, making those suggestions. Well, a great segue between that conversation and the one that we had planned on having about where do I begin is I'm going to throw up the first of the hundred ideas. I'm going to nominate your lesson that you taught about grow a tomato. <laughs> yeah, that was, and, uh, that was a podcast back when you were with that other uh, podcast. Yes, yeah. so, so back in Los Angeles. I, I know, yeah. I know. So back, this is almost 10 years ago when I was on Homebrew Christianity and I was co-hosting with Trip. I did a series on um, eco-theology or um, so it was um, homegrown. We changed our name for about six weeks to homegrown Christianity instead of homebrewed. And you were my first guest in that, that series 
And at the end of the episode, I asked about something practical you could do because I'm a, in my degree is in practical theology. So I asked about something practical and you said, grow a tomato, but you had some reasoning behind it that in our consumer culture, where we have such an odd relationship to our food and you pay right for a tomato, there is something so beautiful and organic and connective about growing a tomato. And then you took it even further and said, once it uh, is bearing fruit, share that fruit with your neighbor. You eat one and you give one away and you bring them into that life cycle. And I've always remembered that, that as a place to start, just growing a tomato is a decolonizing activity. Yeah, and and so I, I talked about using open pollinated seed, <laughs> and the reason I, I said tomato because it's easy. Tomatoes and peppers are pretty easy for even people who have an apartment with a, a sunny window to grow. So you can grow it in a pot, right? Um, and and you get open pollinated seeds. That means that uh, it's not been messed with. Uh, there's been no genetic manipulation. Um, it's it's. Uh, able to produce the same from the seeds of that tomato, you can save them. And when you plant those again, you will be able to see uh, almost a similar tomato to what you had before. So it's going to have the same genetic characteristics. And so OP, when you buy seeds, buy uh, make sure they say OP, non-GMO, open pollinated. Um, and, and so you grow that seed and into a tomato plant, and then you get tomatoes off of it. Share your uh, tomatoes, share your seeds. Um, and what you're doing is not just connecting yourself to the earth, to the dirt, to the things that grow the way that, that creation was meant to be. So there's a cycle going on, right? And you're connecting to that. You're, you're building up, if you will, your spirituality. Because in my opinion, all theology is eco-theology. So you're building your, your theology up. Um, in your spirituality, if you will. I guess that's a, you know, a better way to, to put it, eco-spirituality. And, um, uh, and now you've tasted this fresh thing, this wonderful thing that's, that's so good and tasty and you, to your own, and you feel a sense of, of, of good pride and happiness. And now you are able to take and share that with a neighbor, and they're able to do the same. And then you also have made a massive protest against one of the world's uh, most uh, oppressive uh, movements, which is the uh, the uh, chemical companies and the seed companies who are trying to uh, create a, uh, a patent on all these things and, and do their genetic evil work with them. And so now you've also said, I'm not going to take it anymore. And so that's a first step. That's a very small, but it's a, it's a really important first step. And, and yeah, anybody can do that. Anybody. I love this idea so much. And ever since you uh, introduced me to it, I, I have participated in it. And I'll tell you, it has changed several things for me. For instance, even when I was in Los Angeles growing that, my neighbors would ask about it. What are you growing there? Hmm. And you get in conversations with them. And normally people just walk by and you, they don't engage you at all. But when they see you doing this, it gives you a chance to, you know, talk across the fence or across, you know, to somebody in a different doorway. So it opened up community 
that the, the plants that we were growing actually uh, connected us as humans via the plant. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then everyone was invested in the flower and the fruit of seeing how it would come about. And then if, if, you know, if anything ever came of it, then we would say like, Oh, if we barbecue, you got to come over and we're going to, we're going to put this, we're going to incorporate this into the meal. Just little things like that make such a big difference. But primarily what it did is it helped me to begin to decolonize my own mind and to notice little things like how my city worked or how food got into my store. And it just opened my eyes to a whole thing going on, an ecosystem, yeah. if you will, that I had not been paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I remember one of the, the, the sort of saddest moments I remember feeling in a long time was when Edith and I were speaking at the Ghost Ranch down in New Mexico and and uh, at an adult conference, but there was also a youth conference there. And so they had us come speak to the youth for a, a little session. And there was about 100 youth sitting around, and Edith was talking to them, and, and she said, um, somebody tell me where you get your food. Where does food come from? And they would, I, and I, honestly, it was like five minutes. It was like the most torturous five minutes because they would say, it comes from my mother, it comes from my refrigerator. It comes from the grocery store, you know, and, and it was like, oh, my gosh, do we have to tell them or are they going to, you know? And finally, one of the youngest kids there, little girl, it was the sweetest thing. And she said, it comes from Mother Earth. And I went, that's it. Yeah. But people don't even realize, city kids, they don't even know that, you know, hey, food actually grows from the earth. So when you grow a tomato, you're teaching your children and you're teaching everyone else around that there's a natural process in life. And this, we just connected to it. Sometimes when you and I talk, I get nervous that people will think that we're making a caricature or a straw man and that that you know this these are real stories like i have so many of these from being a youth pastor like one time kids were saying something and and it came out that they didn't know that milk came from cow and that's not a cartoon or a character or like you know a caricature i mean that's a real story I experienced with yeah. my kid. They didn't know. My favorite story about this, by the way, is that when my brother and I decided we didn't grow up hunting or, you know, city, uh, we were city kids. We didn't grow up doing much of that stuff. And we decided we wanted to be more connected to our food. And so that we were going to grow food at each of our different houses and we were going to learn to hunt. And so he got a buck, he got a deer and it was a big deal. And so he was, uh, had it hanging, uh, you know, as you do, uh, yeah. to process it after you harvest it. And the daughter of the people he was living with came home. She was so upset to see this deer hanging there. And he, he was tanning the hide actually. And she sort of yelled at him and he says to her, you have leather boots on. <laughs> and she had, she did not know what leather was. And she had leather car seats and it, right. Her whole car was decked out the steering wheel cover and did not know what leather was. Yeah. So and this uh, really um, uh, goes back to our 
program that we did last week, which is, I, I would just recommend to people to go listen to it, how we know what we know, how we know things, um, is a really good pre, uh, prequel to what we're talking about today, I think, um, is that, uh, that we talked about that death is part of life. This is how the world operates and, and that there are parameters within that that we should operate by. And that's what it means to be a natural person or an indigenous person is, is I think, to respectfully operate within those parameters. You don't use more than what you have. You, you feel a natural sadness. Don't try to, you know, to wish it away or put a head up on your wall or antlers or something like that. Use every part of that animal that you can. All of these kinds of things are part of that uh, ability to be a natural person, to be an indigenous person uh, in a particular place. You slipped something in about 10 minutes ago. You said that all theology is eco-theology. That is one of the most scandalous things I have ever heard you say. <laughs> and but it got me thinking, you know, actually every economy is an eco-economy, right? Sure. You, like you always say, without agriculture, there is no culture. Yep. And so that is a very scandalous and outrageous idea, except... If you take it in for a minute, you start to realize like there is nothing I have that is possible. It all comes out of the earth. Everything. Amazing. Um, that's why Earth's our mother. Everything comes from her. Yeah. So uh, it, it goes back to, you know, the, the, the problem we're in now, the reason we need to decolonize is because there were once maybe 10,000 years ago, um, all people everywhere were indigenous. That means that they, they knew how to live with their land in a way that not only they survived, but, but most times thrived. Um, and, and their ingenuity, their technology was how to live with that land. Um, and those are the natural people. Those are the indigenous people. And, and some of those people are still with us today. Some of those people where traditions have been passed down are still around. Now, we as indigenous people also are, are like North American indigenous people. We need to decolonize as well. We've been, no one has not been affected by this. And so we're all part of this decolonization process. But, but the people who have the Western worldview is the sharpest contrast between what it means to be an indigenous and a natural person. And I believe that within that indigenous knowledge, is the only way that we are gonna survive as a human species in the future. Only by understanding that worldview that connects me to all of creation, that what I call the whole community of creation, and, and realize that I'm a part of it, it is all a part of me, we are all relatives, and we must uh, live respectfully together on this planet. And that is the only way that we're gonna move forward, I believe. Uh, at least move forward and not self-destruct. Yeah. You know, I, Randy, if, if people before the events of the last couple months thought that sometimes you sounded like an idealist or a romantic, I think that never before have you sounded like such a pragmatist <laughs> and a realist as you do right now. Yeah. We're, we're all spiritual people, right? I mean, we are, we are spiritual people, but not spiritual in the sense that um, that, that we have a spirit. We are spirit that is embodied. 
And so everything on earth is spirit that is embodied. Everything has spirit. It, it doesn't carry a spirit. It is spirit embodied. And so the material world is the spiritual world. And only by learning to um, harmonize um, that spiritual world of material, all the things that we see, are we going to be able to live on this physical earth, which is also spiritual, right? So, um, so this is all practical. It's all earthbound. It's all grounded, if you will, uh, grounded uh, spirituality. I like talking about spirituality more than theology because so many people associate theology with Christianity. And this is not something exclusive for Christians by any means. So we all are spiritual people who must learn how to live in a natural way again. And what does that mean? That whole process is decolonization. And if we look at the way that the, um, the West has exploited um, the forest, um, uh, both not just for building, uh, it wasn't primarily used for clearing for fields and that. Most of that, uh, a lot of the early forests were chopped down and used for charcoal so that charcoal could then be used to melt metal. So that could be made into weapons of war. So it could be made into uh, tools for tearing up the earth. So it can be made in all the things that um, people in the West say is progress. So um, the whole idea of uh, you know getting things hot enough has to come from charcoal. And so um, you, yeah, this is the early. This is the. what we call it, uh, prequel or pre- predecessor to coal, is charcoal wood, right? Um, uh, and so we use it now in our kimono joes and uh, our uh, you know big green eggs. That they call it lump. <laughs> lump coal, but that lump coal is exactly how, what moved the West forward into this age of that became eventually nation states. Wow, I just learned something new. I had actually never put that together quite in that way. So Yeah, and of course, all the wood was used for building, you know, in England, it was used in, in Europe, uh, not just England. Um, it was used for building forts, and it was used for building churches, and it was used for, for building castles. And all of that, a lot of that wood actually came from America. That was actually the first byproduct of this, uh, besides the, the native people being enslaved, the first byproduct of this colonial expansion in America was to send these oak trees, especially these virgin oak trees back on ships. And uh, then they could, because they had virtually wiped out everything. They'd wiped out their, um, their supply of forest and only the, the king and, and nobles and others could own forest and even hunt in those places. Um, they had wiped out uh, their fisheries they had wiped out, you know, all of these things. And so then the cod industry and whaling became so big. And, and you know, they were coming over here for all of that because what? They had depleted it all. And so now we're seeing the same pattern. It was brought here 500 and what was it? However many years ago. And now we're watching the same thing happen here on Turtle Island in America that happened in England 500 years ago. It's because of a worldview. That's the only thing that's the same. Everything else is different technologies, et cetera, et cetera. But the worldview is the same. And that's a worldview that extracts from the earth and, uh, and, and uh, colonizes people to work and become those extractors, right? Um, and to think like, uh, Paulo Freire says, to, to think like the oppressor, 
Um, that's the goal of, 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 of colonialism is to think like the colonial oppressor so that um, you kind of escape the, the, the uh, cognitive dissonance, right? That's between what you know to be true and what you're actually doing. And so, um, so that's, that's what happened here and it's happening, you know, happened in England. Now it's happening here and we just, you know, there's no place left to do it, right? We're going to, what are we going to do? We're going to strip the Amazon. We're going to strip the Arctic. We're going to strip the Antarctic for any resources. And then there's nothing left. There's nowhere else to go. Um, and so we have to begin to uh, regenerate our technologies and our spirituality and uh, our cosmologies so that we can begin to, to move forward in a way that is regenerative. If any of our listeners think you're overstating this, just do me a favor. Google why there are no trees in Haiti mm -hmm. or why the earthquake caused landslides on one half of the island and not the other. And the answer is going to be because all of the trees were shipped to France as payment for the end of colonialism. Yeah. And then you look at the devastation that came to Haiti. And if you go on Google Earth, Randy, I don't know if you've ever done this. If you go on Google Earth and look at a satellite photo of that island, it is profound how distinct the boundary is between the half that sent its trees to France and the half that didn't. So the Dominican Republic and Haiti, yep. basically, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. By the way, um, that's part of the, the levels of colonialism is that different colonial powers came into the colonial market at different times and the marketplace had changed. So depending on who the colonizing power was, they often had a different relationship, not just to the natural resources, but also to the indigenous population. And so you can actually see that those who came in later in the colonial period, that the, the way that they viewed the markets had changed drastically. And so the French on that side of that island had a different relationship to the extraction culture and the, the timber mm -hmm. than did um, the other colonial powers in that region. So that's just interesting that depending on which colonial power occupied and what era that they uh, existed in, you can definitely see differences in their relationship to the natural resources. Yeah. And someone like I, I just heard, you know, uh, that uh, Trump has suspended a lot of the uh, EPA regulations that were still in place that he didn't gut already. Um, so that these, you know, corporate uh, feudal corporate fat cats can, you know, don't have to be bothered with these pesky regulations and, and they can, you know, basically continue to exploit the earth in the way that they do, because that's what capitalism does. Um, that's what, the, from a Western worldview, it, it exploits the earth and it extracts from the earth. But when we as indigenous people say that everything is in a circle, right? We understand life in a circle. That is a serious statement. That's, that is about regeneration. That's about looking to the future. So if you are trying to extract something that has only a limited supply and you build your worldview on that, we've built 
technological stuff on that. We've built um, political systems on that. Um, that's what capitalism is. It's built on the idea that we can extract things from the earth, right? And that we can colonize people to, to extract them for us. Um, and so uh, when you do that, um, it's not a circle. It will eventually end up being gone and the people will eventually, uh, you know, either revolt or they're going to, you know, they're going to die or whatever. That's going nowhere. We right now are a, a country that is going nowhere. We have no valid future right now. We only have misery and, um, and, and, you know, tyranny ahead of us. But when you see, see life through a circle, the lens of a circle, when you understand that only renewable energies are those ones that actually come to earth, they energize and do what they're supposed to do, and then we give back. It's that sun is coming back every single day. Um, the, uh, the wind is coming back and, and doing us a favor by supporting energy and giving it to us. And so when we learn to Harness those things, if you will, or really a better word is to cooperate with those with what the earth has already given us and to, to cooperate in a harmonious way, um, then uh, it completes a circle. So um, so this idea of the circle is uh, it's a, the sacred circle is really a way to view all of life. It's not just a way to, to think about our spirituality or something like that, but it's all of life. The, our political systems, if they're not regenerative. Our criminal justice system is not regenerative. Our technological advances, um, they, if they're only meant for a few and they deplete something that will eventually run out, it's not regenerative. This, is, this all started because you grew a tomato, by the way. <laughs> oh, everything we just talked about started with a tomato. That's pretty powerful. Okay, I, and I've been talking a lot, so no, no, no. It, you want to say so? It's good. Okay, I'll, I'll go. Uh, I'll introduce another layer. People uh, sometimes ask me, um, where, "But where, where do I begin?" Let, let's say that they they read your book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, or they. Um, uh, listen to the podcast or whatever, people sometimes reach out to me and say that it's interesting or, you know, that's really challenging. Where would I even start? And so one of the things I say to them and, um, and actually in our book, uh, decolonizing evangelicalism, we provide people with a number of, of lists of questions, just start asking questions. And so, um, I had called you last week and I said, you know, if people are going to be, I didn't realize how much the quarantine was going to last. I, I didn't know if it'd be a couple weeks or, you know, if it would extend, but I said, if people are going to be stuck, we should do an episode about things they can look into um, while they're, as long as they're Googling something, right. Uh, to start decolonizing. And so for me, this is what I often tell people to do. Start with the land you're on. So literally, I mean, start with that land and start asking questions. Like, for instance, I'm uh, at a church building right now. And uh, so to ask the question, whose land is this and where are they now? So that's question number one. Just start where you are. Look down at your feet, see where your feet are and say, whose land is this? And where are they now? 
So you can start. I'm, I'm right by Multnomah Village. And so I Googled um, original people Multnomah. And it turns out that's the original people. That's who was here. That's where that name comes from. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just little things like that to start and realize that some of the village names of the places that you live originate with the people of the land, the original people of the land. So starting to appreciate that and just work that in and then say, and were they part of a, a people group or a language group? And where are those people now? Are they still... Did they become urban when they were moved, if they were moved off the land? Did they join with another uh, uh, coalition of tribes to become a Grand Ron or something like that? But to just start with the land you're on is a powerful place to begin. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is um, the hope that people would not just learn the history, right? The social history. Um, but... If it's those people who have been living with that land for the last 10 to probably 27,000 years, maybe, um, could be longer, but they had developed a worldview that taught them how to live with that particular land. And that worldview is more precious now than ever. And so those are, those people are, are the most uh, are the greatest gift right now to the Western worldview that there could be if someone is open to hear them and to, and to watch. Now, you can't expect that every Native person of that tribal background is going to be a decolonized, you know, non-Western, traditional kind of person. Uh, that's silly. After 500 years of colonization, um, it's affected us all in one way or the other. But there are some who have knowledge of some things and others of others, but, and, and others who put together that worldview and others who say none of that matters to me. But the thing is, is that if we don't preserve that, not just knowledge, because when I talk about knowledge, I'm talking about wisdom and I'm talking about a worldview, how we understand the world. Um, if that is not preserved, we do not have a chance. So the next step that I often tell people to do is to say, talk to me about the institutions you're a part of. Did you go to college or, you know, a high school, whatever it is, right? Just start with whatever institution you're a part of. Uh, do you go to church? What, something like that. Start with an institution that you're a part of and then start there. So I'm part of the United Methodist, this place that I'm at is United Methodist. So, I uh, typed in United Methodist Native American, and two things come up instantly. The first is we have one Sunday per year that is Native American Ministry Sunday. Right. You, you have that, and then you have your CONAM, right? Is that the other thing? You right. Yeah, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. <laughs> but so the fact that there is one Sunday a, a year called Native American Ministry Sunday Right. So instantly something has happened there. Some decision has been made. And so this is in when you and I talk, we talk about the question behind the question. Right. So then you get a hold of that little thread and you got to pull on it a little bit. See if it leads anywhere. So you say, when did this start? And if it was, say, 78 or 98 or 2008, say, what, what was going on that it started then? 
right? So you, you just start, just go down the rabbit hole of asking questions. Who was on the committee that decided this? Right. Are there any need? <laughs> who wasn't? Yeah. There you go. The, yeah, the, the negative question. But I mean that in a positive. We, we like those questions. Or are there any Native Americans on the committee for Native American ministry? Like you start asking questions. So I made a, I just kept track of here's the rabbit hole that I went down. So uh, Native Americans today, are Native American ministries their own district or are they integrated? So I'll give you two examples. When I lived in upstate New York, there was a Native American ministry in upstate New York uh, that was located out in, in the Seneca region. Uh-huh. Uh, beautiful country. Oh, my gosh. It's so beautiful. But that ministry wasn't a part of our Northeast district. It was a part of a, a national district that incorporated Vietnamese and, um, and other congregations, uh, Latino congregations. So all ethnic ministries, and I don't know if it's still this way, but back when I was there. So this pastor from upstate New York, the, the Oneata region, would have to go to, to, to uh, in order to participate in his district, would have to go fly all the time to Western states or down to Southern states. His boss, his district superintendent was located 2000 miles away Mm -hmm. in Arizona or something. So the native ministries were not integrated. They weren't part of their regional because they were ethnic. They were actually elevated out and, and made a trans regional uh, district. See, you got to keep track of stuff like that versus in contrast to that um, just, just here in Portland, our friend Alan Buck is the first native American pastor of what used to be called Wilshire native American fellowship. So the, you got to ask questions like why is there a native American fellowship, but there's never been a native pastor. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Are there not native pastors? So you start asking the question, my the question, and it leads you down a trail where you, so this is how you can begin to decolonize. And, and it ends up, my final question was, are there any native American bishops? Turns out I can't find one. So I said, has there ever been a native American bishop? At one time we were the largest Protestant denomination in America. We've been here over 300 years and we've never had an indigenous bishop. That's weird, right? So then I Googled, were there Methodist um, residential schools? So it turns out in Canada, there definitely was. And But what it led me to is a number of statements out of North Carolina and Oklahoma of the United Methodists repenting for their activities of the past. So all I'm saying is if you're going to be stuck inside during this quarantine period for a while and you want to begin decolonizing, maybe start with institutions that you're a part of, whatever they are, but especially... If you're a part of a religious denomination, 
get into it and ask the question and then another question, another question and let the rabbit trail lead you somewhere. And then, but, but attend, like keep track of it and, 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 and attend to those things because that's a, for me, a great uh, first step in decolonizing. Yeah. And then you let me continue to ask a few of the questions. Um, when they repented, did they repent or did they confess and acknowledge? Because repentance, uh, as I understand it, um, and, you know, I've got probably as good a view as anybody since I've been through, you know, seminaries and been, got a PhD and all that and been in ministry, um, is to go the opposite direction of the direction you're in, to realize I am going the wrong direction. And when you realize that and you say it, that's a confession or an acknowledgement. But to actually repent is to take in all of that energy that you put into going the other, the wrong direction. Now you in uh, you you put all of that into the new direction that you're going, and that would include restitution. It would include restoring honor and dignity to the people that it was taken from. It would include all these acts and investing yourself in all the systems now that empower, as opposed to the systems that disempower. And so when I hear church people say they repent. I don't, it's like Prince's Bride. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Oh my gosh. So I just want to say, the, what I heard you say there was really powerful. I never actually heard you say it before. Is systems that empower versus systems that disempower. That's right. In the United Methodists and every other, you, you basically describe with your own denomination, almost every other denomination, if not every denomination in the United States and uh, Canada. And um, they have oppressed and disempowered uh, and killed native children and people for centuries. And for them to repent means that they have to go the opposite direction of that to invest themselves into native opportunities, to invest themselves into native uh, capital, to invest themselves in the native leadership, to invest themselves into restoring and um, um, uh, paying back, if you will, that that has been taken. And, and actually, if you want to go by the Bible, since most of these people like Bible, um, you actually have to do four times that amount. Of that was taken away. So, um, so it takes exceeding generosity to actually repent and go the other direction. So I would, I challenge anybody out there to show me an example of a church denomination that has actually repented to Native Americans based on that definition. All right. I will take that challenge. So I have, I, I haven't read this whole thing in light of that, but I have two things, two statements up here. And uh, I won't do it right now, but I will report back to you on the next episode. So this is, I'm looking right now at the action steps and covenants. This is from our social principles and resolutions. And I just, so I thought it would be interesting to look at the action steps. And so there's six of them. And I'll just say, number one is we acknowledge. Number two is we affirm American Indian sovereignty. We need to demythologize as three, four, we affirm the sacredness. Number five, we reject stereotypes. And number six, we observe. So, so far, no repenting. So I will have to look at that. Good job of confession. But, you know. Uh, and affirming. Yeah. And, and it's actions that speak louder than the words, though. All right. I'm going to get back to you on this because I'm, 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 I'm decolonizing even as we do this right now.
So, and, and I just put that challenge out there to, to people in general. Um, you know, the, the way that the West brought its worldview and colonization to the Americas is some of the worst tragedies in the whole world. They were brutal, merciless. And if you're a Christian, much of it was done in Jesus' name, in Christ's name. And so um, uh, it's, it, it has, uh, and all because as Native people, we would not assimilate into that worldview because we knew that was a dead worldview. That worldview will only lead to death and destruction. And it's only an indigenous worldview. And so now, um, by and large, the West still doesn't realize that the only way they're going to make it is by repenting, let's use that word again, of that worldview and to turn the opposite direction, which would be an indigenous worldview. You know, if people are saying, well, yeah, I know, but look up the Sand Creek Massacre. More than 200 Native, including women and children, were massacred. And it was by a, that was, attack was led by a Methodist minister. Yeah, Colonel Shivington. Yeah. But if you're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Catholic or anything else, you're not innocent. No. You're a part of the problem, just like we all are. So, no. This is part of the process of asking the question behind the question is you have to go where it leads you. Yeah. And this, you know, we see this as so important. We've been in uh, uh, a place for the last 30 years, over 30 years, actually, my wife and I, where we've tried to empower our Native people. We've seen the worst of it. We've done every kind of thing you can think of um, in terms of services and providing services and, and helps and trying to understand. And, and so we get the problem, we get the solution. Um, and we know that it has to be from both of us. And yet people will say, Hey, I believe in this. I, you know, I'm behind you. But guess what? They won't put their money where their mouth is. Uh, um, you know, we have a few groups that will come and they'll, they'll do some work and help us, you know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, so there's some people, more than a handful, but, you know, not a whole lot more, who will actually dedicate some of their financial resources and things like this. And yet they say they believe in this. We don't know. I mean, there probably are because there's there always are. We don't know anybody else who's doing things quite the way that we are, trying to help our world decolonize and take on a more indigenous worldview. And so, you know, uh, you know I wonder if I'm going to one day die an old man who says we never got the help to do what we needed to do to try and help save our, not save the world because the earth is going to survive. Um, I'm pretty sure of that, but to save our privilege as co-sustainers of this earth, um, the human race will disappear if we don't change. Well, we started with tomatoes. Then we went to the land beneath our feet. We're talking about institutions that we're a part of. But we wanted to round a corner and talk about, okay, once you've entered into the process, how do you begin to construct a positive view as you're talking about, you call it a cosmology, our relationship to all of creation. How do you begin to construct a positive? Um, by the way, down the road at some point, I'm going to have to tell you, we've put talk about putting your money where your mouth is. I have this idea uh, about 
um, if churches and other institutions like colleges gave 10% of their income to the people whose land their buildings were on. And I get this actually from um, a story in the Old Testament where uh, the patriarch gives 10% of, uh, to the king of Salem because he was on his land. Yeah. And Maybe. so there's a, for me, there's a biblical precedent there. But I think about tithing to the people whose land you're on. Yeah, and there, there's actually, that's actually started in some places. So I have a, a, a good friend, Luke Winslow in Seattle, and he's one of the promoters of this program that they, it's a voluntary tax. Um, and they, the, the, the taxes that people are willing to pay for the property taxes, there's a portion of that that go to the indigenous people of the land. And um, I don't know a whole lot about it. Luke is a good resource to find out more about that. But um, it's a voluntary tax, and he's challenging people to, hey, you are on someone's land that was stolen, um, and these people aren't doing well. And so here's an opportunity for you to give back just a small portion, but to give back. And so uh, wouldn't that be nice if, if uh, we could do something like that? We'll have to have him on the show so he can explain it. Yeah, that'd be great. Randy, with the time we have left, do you have any pointers about rounding the corner into a more holistic and integral uh, cosmology, a, a better worldview? Do you have any pointers for going in a different direction? Once you know which way you don't want to be anymore, do you have some pointers about a different way to be? Yeah. So, I, I you know, people ask me this question all the time. Um, the, there's a couple things and ways I answer this depending on who it is asking, right? So one of the things I, I say is you're not ready to turn that corner yet. You don't understand enough because Americans, you know, we talked last uh, week about uh, this uh, no. GUT theory, grand unifying theory, that the, the idea from the enlightenment that we can figure out every problem, just, you know, human beings are the sum all of everything and we can figure it all out, which is just bullshit. Right. So, um, uh, and so, uh, People think that because they're Americans and they're Western, especially Americans, it's a unique thing. And there's some positive stuff to it too, right? But that we can solve all the problems. Um, and they want to fix things. And they want to fix them way too soon. And because saying, I want to fix it, does several things. It says, number one, I probably know more than the indigenous people who've been working on this, you know, for however long. Um, and so I can come in as a white American generally and fix it, right? So that's a that's a wrong attitude. Um, back to our epistemology, you you don't know what you don't know, you know. <laughs> that's good. Um, yes. So uh, uh, and then another thing is um, the idea of fixing stuff and fixing social problems and political systems and communities and uh, you know uh, things like that. It takes all the people involved in that to do it. It doesn't, you know, it's not the white knight who comes riding in and rescues the damsel in distress. That's a very Western kind of picture. It takes the hard work of years of community organizing and setting down with people and say, how do we fix our problem? Right. And so um, and part of that is for the Western people to be to, to reside themselves to be a junior partner in that process, um, not large and in charge. That's the American way. Right. But to say. Uh, I can I can do something here, but you're in charge. You know, I can maybe ask some questions, some good questions, and I can, you know, share my experiences, but but I'm not in charge here. You're in charge. Um, and so, and that is not 
an easy fix. That is not now we can there's some things that we can do. We can start electing politicians who reflect more of that philosophy, right? Um, not people who just want to do more of the same. Now we're we're talking code for uh, Biden and Sanders here, I think. But, um, uh, but <laughs> that was a good but, dog whistle. Yeah, we have to. Yes, that's, yeah. I didn't know I could do dog whistles. <laughs> so, uh, but we have to move to a place where um, uh, it's a real democracy, where more and more people have a say in what happens. And we got a long way to go from that. Um, and so a good practice is to get together with people who are different than you and listen to their ideas, um, to submit yourself to experiences where you are um, the, the oddball, you're the odd person out, um, and, and to be uncomfortable and get yourself in a lot of places like that. And then your worldview will begin to be open to the kinds of things that, that you want to do. But there's just usually, I would say 95% of the time, people aren't ready when they think they're ready. Um, and so, and if they're not ready and they don't count the cost, mm-hmm. then somewhere along the way, they're going to go, oh, this just isn't worth it. And, they're, mm-hmm. and then they're out again. And we've had enough people who get out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because they didn't count the cost. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I'm not really answering the question the way you want it to be answered. Um, I'm just saying we're, we're not even ready to talk about that yet. We can come up with a hundred solutions to decolonize. And I think that's a good thing. You start putting those things into practice because you can do even when you don't know, again, referring back to last week's axiom. Um, but, uh, and you begin to know then by doing. And, uh, and so people can put things into practice. They can begin to do that. But, but we're talking about big problems. People are going to have to step out and they're going to have to be organizers, community organizing. They're going to have to influence their groups. They're going to have to speak up at their churches. They're going to have to to say, we are going the wrong direction and we must repent and go the opposite direction. Now let's figure out what that means. And at some point, you bring an indigenous wisdom to help you figure out what that means. This has been a good first episode on this topic and we know that there's going to be more because a we're going to put together this list of a hundred and we're going to start to crowdsource that so that's an exciting uh if you want to contribute to that listeners you can do that on the facebook account you can email us connect at piecing it all together.com comment below in this uh, episode the show notes And we will start to assemble a nice list of a hundred steps, ways that you can decolonize. But we know we're going to have to return to this uh, again, because like Randy said, sometimes we're not even ready to begin. And that's just the reality of where we find ourselves. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Piecing It All Together. And we especially want to thank our Patreon supporters who continue uh, to sustain us and allow us to host this conversation. We are so grateful for your support. And uh, we want to make sure that everyone knows that the second Tuesday of the month is book club. And so we are in chapter four and five of Richard Twiss's Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. So look for that event on both Facebook and Zoom. We will be sending out the Zoom link to our Patreon supporters. Uh, but you can find it on the website and it'll also be in the show notes. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Um, I apologize about maybe I got on my soapbox a little bit this uh, this thing, but this is this is what I intend to spend the rest of my life and my wife also, um, Edith. Um, we're spending the rest of our life dedicated to this cause. So I, I hope that we can infect you just a little bit with this idea. Thank you for listening. And please share this with anybody who you think might be interested uh, in having a conversation. All right. Peace out.